Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, November 12th, and this is the weekly market update. The disclaimer, anything that you hear or see on this podcast or video is not to be taken as investment advice. It's for informational and discussion purposes only. Please do your own due diligence. It's your money. It's your responsibility. Okay, let's get into this week's slide deck. So um, this is a guy that I follow on Twitter. He does a lot of great work for free. He has a website. If you go and look up this guy on Twitter, there's a link to his website. But uh, he does a lot of Twitter spaces where he analyzes various uh, Canadian um, oil and gas. He does like he's done like three and four hour presentations about supply and demand fundamentals in oil and gas. They're very educational. Um, and so uh, I would recommend that you follow this guy and check out his website if you're interested in understanding, um, you know, getting into the minutiae and the financials and the potential for, I mean, I think there was one uh, presentation he did like a month ago, it was like five hours long and they went over like 20 or 30 different companies. So uh, pretty good uh, information. So anyways, I wanted to point out this tweet this week. Um, against pipeline constraints and shale's heavy decline rates, Appalachia production has now dropped below 2019 levels. As you can see, uh, 2022's in the red. And um, well, I don't have the, the, I had to cut off the uh, different colors, but suffice to say, um, the assertion here is that the, uh, as it goes on to say in the tweet, the days of unrestrained growth in both shale oil and shale gas are behind us, setting up for a new oil and gas regime going forward. Invest accordingly. So this is what we're seeing. Um, uh, decline rates, as you know, in shale oil and gas are very high. And just the, as we've talked about before, the political zeitgeist towards oil and gas extraction I mean, the president is still talking out of both sides of his mouth. Uh, now that the election is over, I suspect that you'll see a lot less of that, uh, you know, um, and we look forward to see what the policy responses will be. Um, you see that the oil and uh, oil prices are, are already starting to head higher. Uh, I don't know if that's just noise. We don't want to, you know, say that we have a trend, you know, two or three days after the midterms, but it was without a doubt that use of the SPR and releasing oil into the market uh, was a was a strategy that the Biden administration had to, in their mind, keep oil prices down and pump prices. And I'm going to show you why in another slide. But, um, you know, this is one of the things that I've kind of have in my investment thesis around energy and oil and gas in particular is that you know, there just seems to be this idea that we can flip a switch and throw money at it and we can ramp up oil and gas. I mean, uh, production in the United States. Uh, I'm not sure that that's correct uh, for many reasons. You know, a lot of the low-hanging fruit has already been um, gone through. And so I think that less prolific areas will have to be exploited, which costs more and require probably a higher price to make them viable. So... Uh, we'll see. Uh, I don't know enough about it. Like I said, I'm a general investor. I'm not an expert on oil and gas uh, 
extraction costs on various fields inside basins. I mean, I'm sure even across the Marcellus, which is in Appalachia, there's various areas that are more prolific or cheaper to drill and more, you know, the production's better. I just don't know that. Um, but what I do know from a generalist point of view, and which makes me bullish, is that, um, you know, there's been insufficient investment, and that continues for many reasons that we've uh, talked about in the past. And so I wanted to point this out. This is a, off stock charts, this is a chart of the oil services, Vanek Oil Services ETF. And what I would note here is the fact that, uh, you know, we dropped, you know, over 90% from the highs in 2014 to the lows of the pandemic when you could have purchased it for, you know, probably almost down 95%. That's five bagged already uh, since then. But I think there's tremendous opportunity still here. And now, as you may have noticed, you know, I've been talking about and in the newsletter, We've been talking about oil field services as being undervalued for probably over a year. And we have several positions there. Um, it's a big weight in the portfolio because I feel like it's one of the last undervalued sectors in, in the energy market. Um, along with, you know, a lot of, you know, we've had a lot of bull runs in a lot of the um, exploration and production companies, but oil field services really hasn't kept up. And, you know, this, you know, post-pandemic bounce is one thing, but as I pointed out, maybe like six months ago, with the oil price where it's at, you know, we should at least see the oil field services index almost probably 100, 100 you know, up in the 600s or 700 range um, based on previous, uh, there was a dot plot chart I saw that showed the oil price of, you know, and then showing where, uh, the dot plots around where this has traded in the past, and we are substantially undervalued. And now I think that's changing. We're starting to see a lot more people in the Twitter sphere, FinTwit, um, generalist investors now recognizing that, recognizing that, you know, the underinvestment that's taken place, and you're starting to see people articulate this thesis, and it's starting to get promulgated and making its way out into the um, investment sphere. And so I suspect that, uh, as I've said before, I feel like um, there will be a, this is a tremendous opportunity. Um, we've seen a lot of the companies that we have in the portfolio come off the bottoms quite, well, quite, quite a bit. Um, it's, not, it's not every single company. Some companies are later stage as you work your way down, right? So the initially what you're going to see in an oil price recovery is the EMPs recover, uh, companies that are on are increasing production into a uh, rising oil and gas price. They immediately respond because their cash flows. And then um, you start working your way down the food chain, right? To drillers, to uh, you know, sand, um, fracking companies, suppliers of tools, equipment, pipe, all the way down back to seismic uh, service providers that, you know, that start, you're starting to see it filter through that whole, um, that whole oil field services uh, world, right? So it, it just percolates through uh, and works its way down uh, the, the, the food chain. So we're seeing that um, a lot of the companies that I follow uh, seem to be acknowledging or at least saying that the prospects going forward, at least for the next several quarters, 
are very they're very optimistic. It's all incumbent upon the oil price, right? If the oil price stays, uh, you know, eighty dollars plus, uh, you're going to see continued uh, benefit. Now, the thing that makes this a lot of people would say, well, you know, so what? They're not spending like they did in previous cycles. They being exploration production companies, oil companies, right? But as I uh, should reiterate, it doesn't matter because these services that are available are not the same that they were in previous cycles. This was probably one of the worst, if not the worst, depression in this business. Many of these companies went away. Many of them had to reorganize in bankruptcy. They've shed unprofitable equipment, old equipment. Many people left the industry. And so the industry that's left there to provide service is not the same size as it was in the past. And so I think you don't have to throw the same amount of dollars as in previous cycles to get uh, outperformance. And I think that's what you're going to see. And I do think that, you know, longer term, when I say longer term, this decade, if you will, we're in a definite energy crisis. I, I have a I have a view. I cannot prove it, obviously. But I have a view that like a country like Saudi Arabia doesn't have the ability to produce that it had in the past. It's reached. I think it's reached its peak. And many other countries uh, in OPEC may have reached their peaks. And there seems to just be this view that all you have to do is throw money at it and we'll self-correct. I don't necessarily share that view. Um, uh, I share the view that, you know, that these fields are old. They've been producing for many, many decades. And at some point, every well, every area, every field, every country that produces oil eventually reaches a peak and then goes into terminal decline. And there's no amount of money you can throw at. You can uh, extract more efficiently by using second, uh, you know, using water floods, CO2 floods, all these different things to slow the decline, to extract more of the remaining oil in place, but you cannot reverse the decline once it's been re reached. It's, it's relentless. And so uh, do I think that Saudi Arabia would come out and say, oh, we've reached our peak and we're in terminal decline? Absolutely not. That would take away from their power and their ability to influence the oil market. So they're not gonna say that, but you know, around the edges of them, you know, cutting oil production or cutting the quotas, um, you know, where are you seeing the growth, right? You're seeing growth in like offshore Guyana, right? Where Exxon's having tremendous um, results. You're seeing offshore West Africa, right? Namibia, places like that, uh, where one of the portfolio companies we have had a, one of the largest finds recently. Um, and, and places like this, off the wall places, right? And so it's going to require, you know, a higher oil price to stimulate activity. And I think that's what we're, we're lining up to see. And then when you put that against that spending, that level of spending that you need against an industry that has, you know, has shrunk massively from its uh, from previous cycles, then I think that sets up for a, a tremendous uh, returns. And I think that's what we're going to see. And I think as, you know, we've made a recent new high here, um, you know, this thing is very volatile, as you can see. Uh, this thing swings uh, up and down uh, based on the oil price. But if you listen, to, like I said, if you listen to many of the conference calls recently, uh, most, if not all of the managements were up, either very, very optimistic, depending on who you were listening to, or at least you know, depending on where they are in the food chain and based on the activity they're seeing and the interest and the, uh, you know, 
prospects going forward. So I think this is a, you know, still a tremendous, you know, like we've been on this for a year and I just, you know, it's another example of finding a sector that had an inevitability to turn and getting there before everybody else. Now people are starting to come to where the puck yeah, is, right? So we're starting to see that. Um, so anyway, that's, uh, that's my view. And I think this continues again, be prepared for the volatility that'll be inherent in a lot of these companies are not that big. They swing around based on the oil price. Here's another reason why, uh, you know, you're having problems going to expanding um, production and, in, 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 you know, services. It says uh, hiring in oil fields, oil and gas unemployment rate is lowest since 2005. And here you go, right? It says uh, job, U.S. shale unemployment rate tumbles to match lowest since 2005. So again, you don't have the people. Um, that's an unemployment rate of 0.8%. That's crazy, right? You see at the top of the pandemic, um, the unemployment rate was almost 20% in this industry. And you see what's happening. So you're going to, what happens is now you, all the experienced hands have come back. And if you need to bring on, if you want to create another frat crew, well, then you have to bring guys over for experienced guys. You have to buy the equipment, which is, you know, do you want to make this investment? You have to pay guys to come out there and oil field service work is very, very hard work. Um, if you watch some of the videos when frat crews are working, I mean, these guys work sometimes two days straight. There's no like work rules out there. Uh, yes, they try to be as safe as they can, but you know, time is money and these guys, you know, setting up the spreads, operating it, breaking it down, going to the next job. There's a lot of intense work. They take a lot of pride in the fact that, you know, they, they, they can get the job done, whatever it takes to get the job done. And a lot of people are not like tuned up for that kind of work. Uh, there's a tremendous opportunity. Like I see a lot of people, I know quite a few people that work in the oil field uh, on this thing. They make a lot of money, but it's not an easy life. And it's not appealing to people that, uh, you know, have a certain view on uh, working. I mean, you're going to work with your hands and it's kind of self-selecting, right? If you go out there and you're kind of a punk or you're, uh, you can't hack it, they'll run you off. I mean, they don't, they don't care about your feelings. They don't care about, you know, anything. What they're about is, are you squared away? Can you get the work done? And do you turn to? That's what it's about. And you're going to get paid, and then you're going to be part of the in-group. If you're just out there lollygagging and playing around, they're going to throw your butt off this job site, and they don't care. It ain't going to be, like, done nicely. It's just like, get up on it. Get out of here, hand. You're done. And, uh, you know, and you're going to – that's how it is out there. So that's why I think this isn't just going to go away if you just raise salaries because it attracts a certain kind of person that that can do that kind of work and can put up with the uh, hardships that are out there. So this is another impedi impediment to just, you know, getting, getting this big, you know, new push of new oil and gas, right? People, the people aren't available. I wanted to talk about this, you know, we saw recently the recent inflation report. I'm not going to get into the macroeconomics. We kind of maybe are seeing now the, the, CPI come in lower. Um, it looks like, you know, these crushing, they're not really super high interest rates based on historical relativism, but for this over indebted economy, they are high enough. And here's what you're starting to see, right? High interest rates are biting very hard. Here's uh, just like, I'm not going to go through all the colors, but these are the um, 
net percent of uh, domestic banks reporting stronger demand for jumbo mortgage loans down 81 percent uh, net percent of domestic banks reporting stronger demand for non uh, jumbo mortgage loans down 79 percent I mean you'd have basically down almost this is like these are records this is worse than 2008 because it simply is unaffordable you know this financialized economy we have is very sensitive to interest rates and now the fed overindulged the economy with low rates created all these made-up businesses all of this asset appreciation uh speculation and now it's unwinding and you know so we're going to see pain in a lot of these sectors I think the only thing that's positive here, which is not really positive, the only thing that showed positive growth was net percent of domestic banks reporting stronger demand for credit card loans. That's because as people become crunched on their income, they're resorting to credit cards to live. You know, I, uh, you see people in the, I mean, I use credit card to get airline points for everything, but I pay off my, my credit card balances every month. I mean, a lot of these people are, you know, they don't even I had somebody tell me this one time, it's true. A lot of these people don't even, you know, they're buying things on credit. They don't have the, they're making minimum payments. They don't even own the underwear they're wearing. And it's not funny. It's not something to be, you know, laughed at. It shows you how dysfunctional our economy really is. Now, this is beyond my scope of, you know, discussing in these weekly videos. I just like to point out these vignettes. Uh, housing is one of the main drivers of our economy. And it's completely basically the slam the door shut. Now I see a lot of houses still being built here and around Houston area where I live. Apartment buildings going up, but most of these probably may have been financed well before in advance. Plus, you know, we have a big um, segment of the energy um, energy uh, economy here. So people are cash flush if you're in the energy industry. But I have also seen as I as I've made if I said before is the perusals I do and starting to see the price cuts on these over um, over priced properties. So this is something to watch. Uh, I think that, you know, you saw what the inflation situation may be rolling over. It was inevitable that it would. I don't, I'm not saying we're going back to 2% inflation, but you already saw, I think, I saw one of the Fed governors saying that it may be time to pause and see, you know, what is if if the if the increases in interest rates have been sufficient to get them, you know, let's see what's that's, what's going to happen. So, um, at some point, and 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 we saw, you know, commodities rip over the last couple of days because of this, right? We also uh, another reason which we'll get into, which is China, but we'll get into that in a minute. But uh, this, you know. This is going to basically all in our financialized economy, which is over indebted and reliant on debt. You know, we're starting to see uh, the the effect of interest rates being even historically not that high, but high enough to basically, you know, come in like a wrecking ball in this financialized economy. And so at some point, the pivot's coming. And, you know, I think that uh, I'm a little, I think things are going to rip. I mean, copper's at 370 a pound, guys. And, you know, we're supposed to be heading for a recession. I mean, oil is over, Brent's over 90, I think five today. So, I mean, that's telling you that there's a supply issue out there. And what happens when the world is 
you know, has to pivot and start, you know, going back to QE again. I mean, these things are going to rip. Uh, so anyway, that's that's my view. But this is this is, you know, showing you that mortgage demand for mortgages is loans is is worse than two th during the housing crisis. Not good. Here's another indicator, right? Used car prices, you're down to 2008 levels, right? They continue to crash. These used car prices are like four and a half or 5% of the CPI. So, you know, I've been talking about this off and on too. And you see, this is the Mannheim used car, used vehicle value index year over year. Um, you see what happened during the pandemic when production was shut down, all the prices went up. That's when you should have sold your car if you were wanting to do that. And now you've seen what's happened uh, as rates have went up. People can't qualify. You know, I, I had the the vignette or the slide last week where it showed that the percentage of people in the U.S. state by state who had car payments over $1,000 a month. That was crazy. And there were places like Texas where over 20% of the people have a, a car note that's 20% or that's uh, over $1,000 a month. That is out of, that's out of this world. And so what happens is they can't afford it or they get laid off or they got into themselves into something they can't pay for. And then they end up forfeiting it. And, you know, this is what happens or people can't afford cars or people are waiting now. When This is another thing that happens. You know, I'm in the market for a, a certain vehicle. And uh, I know a lot of other people I've seen have said the same thing. But now that they know that prices are coming down, why not just wait? OK, maybe they'll go down even further. So uh, that would be, uh, you know, something to uh, pay attention to. And just hold off buying to get an even better deal. But in many cases, it's, they can't just they can't find the vehicle that they want or the price, you know, hasn't come down still sufficiently. So we'll see. But this is uh, it's another reason why, you know, things are are rolling over as far as. Uh, CPI. All right, so I wanted to get into this talking about energy. I think energy is probably the most important thing. I mean, there was, uh, I heard some other folks talk about this, like what are some under other undervalued sectors? Where could we go? Is this played out? But I, I think this is your major dominant theme, as I've said before, for at least the next three to five years and possibly for the rest of the decade is the uh, lack of available energy. You know, I was listening to um, Macro Voices um, and what's the guy's name that runs it? Eric something. I can't remember his last name. But anyways, he's positing uh, something he says to when he's talking to a lot of his guests is um, the fact that his view is, and he's an oil trader uh, by, by trade or energy trader. And he interviews all these guests about uh, different macroeconomic situations. Pretty good guests. And one of the things that this Eric guy says is Eric Townsend is his name. Anyways, he says that his view is that the amount of energy available because of the underinvestment and some of the other things that we've that we've talked about also uh, is such that even the economy won't be able to fully recover because the energy uh, there's not sufficient cheap enough energy. That as soon as you start to recover the economy, the energy prices are going to increase and then you know, put a wet blanket on any recovery. I think that's, I think that's a good point. I think it's possibly, you know, the point to focus on, you know, as I just said earlier in this conversation we were having here, so-called, you know, Europe is in a, in a, in a recession, 
China with its self-inflicted uh, COVID pandemic uh, things, policies. Um, most countries raising rates around the world trying to deal with this inflation. And yet the main problem is this insufficient energy. And so as you raise rates, if you're a company wanting to expand production, now you have to go, if you want to borrow money, you have to borrow at higher rates. So you see, it's almost like a circular fire, firing squad. And again, like I, like I think, or I have a view that OPEC, several of the OPEC countries can't necessarily raise production. Like I said, they're not going to admit that. Eventually, I think that will become acknowledged. And so Eric Townsend's view that you can't really have a, a real recovery because every time that you try to go out and stimulate or try to have an economic recovery, energy prices will rise sufficient to stifle that. And uh, I think that that's a, uh, a good possibility. So anyways, Saudi oil chief says OPEC plus will stay cautious on production. So even with oil prices on Brent at 95, you saw that they, you know, recently what they did at the last meeting, they're having another meeting on December 4th. You know, what are they really going to do? What can they do is the question. Uh, will they raise production or do they think this is a good sweet spot where, you know, 85, 90, up to $100 a barrel is a good price, you know, I don't think they have the same ability to affect oil prices as they had in the past of just turning the taps on because we know for a fact that the spare capacity isn't there that used to be there. So anyways, uh, it says Saudi Arabia's energy minister said OPEC plus will remain cautious on oil production weeks after the group angered the U.S. by lowering output. The 23-nation alliance led by Riyadh and Russia is set to meet on December 4th to decide whether or not whether to cut production again, keep it stable, or reverse course and pump more. Members are looking at the state of the global economy and seeing plenty of uncertainties. Our theme is being cautious, the minister said to Bloomberg TV at the COP27 climate summit in Egypt. It's about being responsible and not losing sight of what the market requires. So this ties into my whole, you know, another slide that we'll talk about later around the politics of this, but Regardless, um, I don't see them just reversing course a month later and starting to announce, you know, production increases. I, I don't see that. Uh, probably they stay the course. Why not? The prices are where they need to be. And, uh, you know, we have a lot of other things coming into the market, you know, with these EU um, uh, sanctions that are going to take place on oil uh imports from Russia, which I think go into effect in December, and then the product imports from Russia that go into effect in February. So why do anything right now? Just wait. And uh, of course, this will probably anger the administration or anger people in Europe, but they, what can they do about it? Okay, they can't do anything about it. And uh, we've seen that already. So uh, I expect that probably they'll just maintain the status quo and see how things shake out over the next couple of months with all these sanctions and things like that. And it may just do the work for them where, where the price goes up. And they can just point back at Europe and say, listen, we, we have the ability to produce more oil, but you are the ones that have put these sanctions on one of the you know largest oil producers in the world. What do you want us to do? You know, we don't, and, and then it becomes a question of then, well, you don't have the real spare capacity that you, know, that you, that you uh, um, suggested you had speaking to Saudi Arabia. So this is another thing. Um, I was listening to uh, Louis Gov. 
he's been talking about this. Some other people have been talking about, you know, China cannot afford, you know, now that Xi has his emperor for life deal going, uh, Xi Jinping, um, the reversal of the pandemic zero COVID policy in China seems to be, you know, loosening, let's put it that way, because several factors. I mean, first of all, um, politically, I think it will happen like Louis Gov said, it'll be by a committee. They'll be slowly, it won't be Xi Jinping getting up there and saying it because if it, there's some blowback, if they open up and then a bunch of people and a million people die of COVID, uh, then it won't blow back on him. But there'll be these slow incremental changes moving towards lowering and removing the restrictions because first of all, the economy in China is a total mess. Okay. And this isn't being, this isn't helpful to it. Uh, and, but they want to do it, you know, they, they put so much of their prestige and personal um, prestige, if you will. Uh, you know, it's hard to reverse a decision, right. Uh, that you've invested so much politically uh, and personally into which a lot of the uh, like Xi Jinping did. And so I think that they'll slowly uh, it won't be just like snap their fingers and lift all the restrictions you're going to see this slow incremental because they still, you know, even when they raised lowered some of these restrictions, they still had some outbreaks that they were dealing with in uh, one of the major cities there. I can't remember off the top of my head. Regardless, uh, I think we're moving in the right direction here. And this is not negative for oil prices, which we'll talk about uh, in a minute. It says, uh, China eases some COVID restrictions. Uh, I will put as many links to these articles that I can in the show notes if you want to peruse them, uh, if they're not uh, blocked by a paywall. And you can read it for yourself if you'd like. But anyways, from the article, China has reportedly made long-awaited changes to its COVID-19 policies for inbound travelers, according to the media reports based on a statement from the country's National Health Commission on Friday. Quarantine time for visitors has been cut to five days from seven, with three days of home isolation. Bloomberg and the South China Morning Post reported, and those entering the country need only proof of one negative PCR test made 48 hours before flying. So you're starting to see these loosening of restrictions, even though you still got a quarantine. China leaders had promised Thursday to ease the zero COVID strategy that has caused economic upheaval. However, crackdowns were seen elsewhere with soaring cases causing fresh restrictions in Beijing, which closed parks, switched schools to offline and closed some shops. And 5 million under lockdown in the southern manufacturing hub of Guangzhou and the western megacity Chongqing, AP reported. So you see, it's kind of fit and starts here, but I think we're going in that direction. China doesn't have a choice. They got to get out of this. Um, I think uh, economically, it's not something you can just stay in forever. I mean, at this point, it's something that's endemic and is going to be with us forever. It's just going to be, as I said before, in my view, one of the 150 to 200 circulating um, upper respiratory viruses that the world has out there, whether it's RSV, influenza, other coronaviruses that are out there. I mean, there's a whole plethora of upper respiratory viruses that circulate. And so I think this one will become endemic uh, without getting into conspiracy theories and people are just gonna have to deal with it. And uh, that's just the way it is. That's uh, life on earth um, for humans for since they've been around. So uh, we'll see, uh, but I think this is important because if you move even over the next like six months or a year towards full opening, what does that do to oil demand? I mean, some people have speculated that 
with these lockdowns, you know, China's oil demand is two million to two and a half million barrels less than it normally would be. You couple that with the ending of the SPR releases, which were averaging around a million barrels a day. And now you have to come up with three and a half million barrels of oil, not to mention the decline rates that are happening every year of six to 7% worldwide, not to mention the fact that, uh, the gas to oil switching that's that's happening in some areas, and just the natural uh, growth of oil demand uh, as eventually you know the world comes out of this you know recession. So again, Eric Townsend's view may be the correct view that you just do not have the energy available to sustain any economic uh, recoveries. We will see. But uh, I, I again, this is another thing that we were looking for uh to to on our thesis about oil prices going higher over the next several years throw into the throw into that the uh you know the view that uh you're going to see russian production going down because of the inability to invest or the inability to have access to the world's best oil field services companies and so inevitably you know, how much is that going to be over the next year or two? Is that going to be a million barrels a day, 800,000 barrels a day? Who knows, right? Um, what kind of damage happens to their wells if they have to shut in wells because they can't replace other customers with the Europeans that are supposedly going to, you know, implement these bans? So there's a lot of plates in the air, but they all, to me, seem bullish for oil. So I wanted to point this out. Um, this was a, uh, I get these emails from Bloomberg every day that summarize the news, but they had this chart and they have like a chart of the day. So popularity versus the pump price, the blue line showing the uh, president's approval rating. And then you see the gasoline price here. And you can see when gasoline spiked this summer, uh, you saw, you know, over, the, over time as the gasoline prices have went up into the summer, um, the popularity went down. Now, I don't think that's the only reason, but it didn't help. Uh, and then you saw, you know, when they started really pushing the SPR releases um, and tried to drive down the oil price, which I think that, you know, with the economic deterioration around the world, coupled with, you know, these million barrels a day that they were basically putting into the world market. Um, remember, all these commodities are priced at the margin. You know, you saw his poll uh, numbers improving you know off the off the summer bottoms you know um but we will see now that the election is over what will happen i mean you cannot just keep removing oil from the spr forever will they continue to do that will they slowly wean themselves off that and will we see you know oil prices react now um i think some people on twitter were saying you know the oil price jump in the last couple of days is, you know, people front running, you know, the end of these SPR releases. So we will see, but, you know, this is what Bubis concentrates. And I talked about this before, Bubis Americanus doesn't really have a grasp of the real issues of what's going on. No one's voting, uh, you know, it's everything's emotional, right? Everything's an emotional response or like, you know, an insect with whatever, you know, pheromones hit their uh, antennae and they just, you know, just process this uh, information at the basic level uh, oil prices high biden's fault well it's a little bit more complicated than that but you know this is you know people that are aspiring to rule over you know this too so 
got to keep the hoi polloi happy, right? And if, you know, if you're paying, if people, you know, if they would not have released these, uh, had these SPR releases, it's quite, you could make the argument that oil would be well over a hundred dollars a barrel and gasoline would be six, $7 a gallon all over the place. And that would have probably been a negative effect, or at least they thought that it would be in these recent midterms. But like I said, we have a lot of now tailwinds behind the oil price going forward and the removal of the SPR releases is one of them. So we'll see what happens to Mr. Biden's approval rating. He's talking about running for president in 2024. Um, so we'll see. But I thought this was interesting because it kind of illustrates, you know, how Bubis uh, reacts to um, gasoline prices, gasoline and food prices, of course, you know, that's about the extent of the depth of the policy um, that the average person uh, reflects on before going and casting their vote. And so I wanted to talk about this because it's going to lead into another conversation real quick that I wanted to have on the subsequent slides. But uh, I talked about this at the periphery. You know, many countries, you know, the EU's patting themselves on the back. And if you read the Western media, uh, they've solved the energy problem. Don't worry. Everything's fine. Uh, but they did it by basically having all this LNG be paying these extraordinary prices and outbidding these other countries for these available LNG cargoes. You know, there is not sufficient LNG for everybody in the world. And so what the Europeans did was because they're wealthier, they just basically outbid everybody else. And so everybody, all the, all the LNG went there. And so uh, because no one actually analyzes things deeply and just reads headlines, then the view can be made that, well, they've solved the problem. It's not that big of a deal, but the problem is other problems exist, right? For countries that can't out, uh, that are outbid. And here's Pakistan, for example. How the, world, how the European energy crisis is reverberating around the world. And we've talked about this before on this channel for months. Pakistan will ration this winter gas supply to households. Three hours of supply in the morning, two in the afternoon, and three in the evening. No supply the rest of the 16 hours of the day. Okay, so... Um, if you're a policymaker in Pakistan or if you're running for office there, are you going to like, you know, this is something you can run on. And as we see this shift to the multipolar world that I've been talking about, and many people smarter than me have been talking about for longer than I've talked about it. What do you think Pakistan's going to drift to? The US and the EU or maybe to the BRIC countries and the Shanghai Cooperative and making a deal with Russia or whatever? I think that's what you're going to start seeing, folks. And it's not just Pakistan, other countries, right, that are getting, um, you know, frozen out, if you will, because the EU has the ability to print money and just outbid people for these cargoes. And this is what ends up happening to other countries that can't compete, you know, uh, with that type of, um, you know, bidding process. They just get outbid for limited cargoes. So, um, you know, People in Pakistan are not going to blame, you know, they're going to be looking to look somewhere else. And this opens an opportunity for the other side, other sides in the multipolar uh, world that we're moving to, to use this as an opportunity to woo other members in and to say, look, you're being treated unfairly by the Europeans. They're outbidding you. You can't compete. But here's what we'll do because, you know, we're going to establish a long-term contract with you at a reasonable price where we benefit and you benefit. And don't think that the people and people won't do that. Don't think that Russia won't do that. They certainly will. And uh, that's 
you know, and then what do you do? Uh, yes, uh, people want to make money, but trying to, you know, because we're in World War Three between the, you know, Atlanticists and the Europeans and there's, you know, Atlanticists and their stooges in the EU against everybody else around the world, basically, uh, as this hegemon begins to crumble, this is what you're going to see more news like this. And then this is an opportunity for the other players in the multipolar wrestling match to move in and use energy as a political uh, tool to onside other countries. You're just going to see more of this in my view. Is it actionable? Yes, it's actionable. Get out of the West. Do not invest in the West. It's in decline. So this came out of uh, COP27 talks. Africa will develop their fossil fuels. Again, here we go, right? I mean, it's about energy security and the fact that, you know, energy is needed for development. And if you're just going to tell developing countries or emerging markets that have very, very poor populations that, hey, you just need to, you know, worry about climate change. They don't care about climate change. People are bur still burning, you know, uh, cattle dung and wood and charcoal uh, to cook their food in Africa. No, the, 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 the people that are running those countries are not going to be uh, open to thinking they can solve the problem with solar panels and wind farms. I'm sorry, it's not going to happen. African nations must be allowed to develop fossil fuel resources to help lift up their people out of poverty, government said at the COP27 climate talks in Egypt, which welcomed leaders of oil and gas companies sidelined at previous talks. As a matter of fact, I think I read in one of the articles, it's over 627 representatives of fossil fuel companies at this conference. Pressure to leave hydrocarbons in the ground has been weakened this year by the disruption following Russia's invasion of Ukraine that led to a surge in energy prices and pushed inflation to multi-decade highs. I want to deal with this particular canard. Energy prices were already moving higher before this war started. This just made this just threw gasoline on the fire, if you will, and made things worse. Okay, but we were already heading for an energy crisis. We that has been well established. So this particular canard needs to be, uh, you know, disavowed. Uh, another blurb from the article, quote, there is a lot of oil and gas companies present at present at COP because Africa wants to send a message that we are we are going to develop all of our energy resources for the benefit of our people because our issue is energy poverty. Their issue is energy poverty, not CO2 emissions or what might happen in 50 or 100 years. Could happen, might happen. We don't know. We can't predict the weather next week, but we know it's going to happen in 100 years. Uh, this is from the Namibia's Petroleum Commissioner, Maggie Shino, who works within the country's Ministry of Energy and Mines. And I've heard this before from other governments, personally from government officials in countries that have extensive fossil fuels uh, resources. Uh, this exact same message directly to me. I have had this conversation, not with like the energy minister of a country, but lower level officials. Let me say this again. There is a lot of oil and gas companies present at COP because Africa wants to send a message that we are going to develop all of our energy resources for the benefit of our people because our issue is energy poverty. So you see, this is what's going to happen, whether people in Europe or the U.S. like it or not. And so this is, again, more part of the breaking apart of the 
uni unipolar world. You know, people, you require energy to develop. You require energy to make your country more prosperous. You require energy for people to move up in wealth. Why, why should these people sideline themselves uh, because a bunch of mentally addled people in the West have this belief that a trace gas is going to destroy the earth. They're not going to do it. Okay. It's that simple. And so is it actionable? Yes. They're going to develop this oil field services. They're going to drill. They're going to partner with companies. Okay. And there's nothing anybody in the West can do about it. That's just that simple. And if they try to, then these people will move to the eastern side of the multipolar world where countries will help them finance and develop their resources i.e china i.e russia i.e india i can go on and on that's what's happening okay are you seeing what's starting to happen do you get the big picture we have one section of the world that seems to be in its ascendancy and another section of the world that dominated the world for the last 100 or 200 years however you want to characterize it in descending Okay, so pick your side. So here we go is another article. I didn't, I'll post the article, you can read about it, but um, this is what I'm talking about, folks. This is what's happening. This is the trend. The trend is your friend. What's the trend? You know, your Western countries, the United States, Europe, the UK, and the little vassal states here, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, which just, you know, ride on the coattails. The rest of the world, 12 more countries want to join BRICS. Why do they want to do that? Well, you can read the article. We've been talking about this. Is it actionable? Yes, it's actionable. Okay. You need to be thinking about these areas here in Central Asia. Okay. Uh, the dominate, look at it, look, the domination with 11 or 12 time zones and the $75 trillion worth of resources here that are going to be fed into these areas. Okay for manufacturing, okay? Uh, the fact that if you go and see, I was thinking it was funny, like in Mali or one of these countries, Niger, they basically kicked the French out. The French Foreign Legion had to leave because they had these insurgencies and, you know, you have Russians there now, part of the Wagner group and some other pe people waving Russian flags. Are you starting to figure out what's happening? The alignments the, the are happening. And as I've said before, no one, no one has a fear or trepidation of the U.S. anymore. Because they, they see it as the weak, the weak paper tiger that it is, okay? And that's why this thing in Ukraine is way bigger than just having to do with two breakaway republics in the East, okay? Uh, you even had Jens Stoltenberg and other people in the EU and in NATO say they have to, NATO has to be victorious in this or come out, proceed to come out ahead, or it could be the end of the alliance, OK, but you see on the other side what's happening and you could say, well, Iran, who cares? Saudi Arabia. I mean, Saudi Arabia wanting to join the BRICS. This is this stuff's going to happen over the next year or two years. OK, and it's going to be more countries because they're going to see it as their. You know, this view that uh, countries have allies and they just do. No, countries have um, uh, they don't have allies. They have interests. And if it's in your interest politically, if it's in the interest of your country's development, if it's in the interest of uh, overall weighing of the scales, then you're going to move to, and do what's beneficial. And so the United States is running around the world now because we have weak leadership here, weak 
spent, no octogenarian working out of the post-World War II handbook, neoliberalism doesn't work. And people are casting it off. And they realize that they can cast it off and there'll be no repercussions. What, you're going to send Tony Blinken over to my capital and complain? Well, listen politely or not so politely like an Indian, then you'll leave. What are you going to do? Overthrow every government in all 12 of these countries that want to join BRICS? How? And so it's not going to happen. And so is it actionable? Yes, this is a long process. It's not something that will happen in a week or two or a month or two. This is a process that's going to happen over the next years and decades. Okay. And so what the United States should do is realize, you know, this is the problem. I think this map shows you everything you need to know. When I talk about the McKinton situation, where the vision is to have a common economic block stretching from Lisbon, Portugal to Vladivostok, do you get it? Do you get it? Do you understand what I'm talking about? Do you understand what the Belt and Road is, which is to bring manufactured goods through Central Asia into Europe? Okay, utilizing the ubiquitous, cheap, and available resources that are available in Russia and Kazakhstan and Iran and all these places to fuel that. And then what's the United States do? They're over here across the Atlantic. What are we supposed to do? We're froze out of this. This is what this is about, okay, in my view. And if you're not picking up on the vibe, look what's happening in Latin America, okay? Look, we're going to see more and more of these countries get filled in. And so where is the power going to be? Is it going to be in the East? Or is it going to be in the United States and Great Britain trying to run everything with a leadership that is spent with indebtedness now going 31 trillion, heading to 35 trillion by the end of the Biden administration? And it's not Biden's fault. This is, this is set in stone. It's not going to change. And so, you know, what are you going to do? You're in decline. Hundreds of trillions of dollars of debt and unfunded liabilities. No new fresh ideas. The fresh ideas and faces you get are totally off the wall. Like people like AOC, they don't have a clue what's going on. And so you're going to see, you know, uh, I've said this prediction before. I don't see the United States being an intact political entity in 20 years or less. It's just, it's just not sustainable. Same thing with the EU. It's going to break apart. And so alliances are going to be formed. People's self-interest is going to dominate. Okay. And it's inconceivable for most people because recency bias, they don't have the intellect. They don't understand history. They don't get it. But this is what's happening. You're living in historical times. This is going to create tremendous opportunities for people that actually know what's going on and have figured out what's going on in my view. So we'll see. But I think that uh, this is a trend that you need to follow, whether you agree with me or not. Again, here we go. T 2000. Uh, here's the world. And here's the uh, trading partners. Uh, most of the world had as their, their biggest trading partner, the United States. Okay. And the red was countries that had their biggest trading partner being China. Now look at 2020. So do you, do, you, do you see what's happening? Do you see why we demonize China, why we demonize Russia? Do you get it? It has nothing to do with democracy. Please do not tell me that that's what, if, you, if you're on that vibe, you are so, you're playing checkers, man. You don't get it. You can't even play, you're playing Uno, man. You, 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 you're not understanding global strategy, okay? You don't understand what's been going on in the world for 200 years. Okay, this is why 
this is what the United States is afraid of. And so they only react the only way they know how to, by threatening. What they should do is realize their new place in the world that's going to be a multipolar world and then put policies in place to try to, you know, enhance our ability. Not going around, you know, how much money and time do we waste in Afghanistan, in Iraq, okay, to over trillions of dollars that we did not have. Again, you're back to that person, like I talked about earlier, that running up a credit card. They don't even own the underwear they're wearing. We're in the same boat here as a country. And so you see what's happening now is this, <clears throat> people in power want to keep their wealth in power and they understand what's happening. So they're only doing what the only thing they know how to do, which is, you know, overthrow governments, threaten, bully, not look for win-win situations. And that's what the global, that's what the East is offering. I'm not saying that that's what they're going to get or if it's a ruse, or it's going to be better if, you know, the global East and global South rises and the U.S. goes out. I'm not saying that. I'm just telling you what the trend is, okay? I don't know if it'll be better, but you have, an, you have a responsibility if you're an investor to look at things for the way they are, not the way you want them to be. I've told these stories a hundred times. I see so many people that take their personal biases and their invest, investing we all have biases, including me. That doesn't mean I'm preaching from on high, like I'm the total guru Yoda that has expunged myself of all biases and all my investment decisions have no bias. What I'm telling you is, is that, uh, you know, if you cannot see what's going on, how many people at the bottom of the S&P after the great financial crisis, when it, S&P was 666, as a matter of fact, and the Federal Reserve was pumping money into the uh, economy left and right, cutting rates, refused to buy stocks because they didn't like Barack Obama. What's that got to do with anything? I'm in this to make money, not lose money. Okay, so this is what happens when you put your biases and your beliefs, okay, ahead of economic reality. And so German industry stares into the abyss. Facing a prolonged energy crisis, which is self-inflicted, by the way, many German firms face the unpleasant option of either shutting down or relocating elsewhere. Europe's manufacturing powerhouse is set to scrape by this winter thanks to gas reserves built up over the last eight months, avoiding an energy blackout. Without relief in the form of cheaper power, the nightmare in 2023 and beyond could be a hollowing out of Germany's heavy industry. It's already happening which not only underpins its export-led economy, but is also inextricably linked to thousands of suppliers in neighboring EU countries like the Czech Republic and Slovakia. For them and for the rest of the EU's economy, the consequences of deindustrialization in Europe's biggest economy could be catastrophic. You know, it's a good view or idea that basically um, Europe will slide into deindustrialization It'll become poorer over time. And it'll be this quaint little place. Well, this is the best case that you go to to look at how things were, you know, back in the day. Oh, go to some castles, tourist attractions. It'll be very cheap. Uh, and, you know, that's one way to look at it. And, you'll, you know, the wealthy in India and China will hire nannies and butlers from Europe to come work in their countries uh, because that's where all the money is going to be. Okay. Or what's more than likely to happen is with all of the bad decisions that the Europeans have made over the last 25 or 30 years with unfettered emigration from third world countries, with the amount of debt they have, 
with their inability or unwillingness to uh, have their populations uh, be renewed. Their birth rates are declining. Too many old people, too many promises made to people, uh, pensions and retires. This whole thing's going to be a mess. And now you're taking the golden goose and wrapping your hands around it and, and strangling it. You tell me what the outcome is going to be. I don't see the EU surviving until the end of this decade if this continues. What needs to happen is immediate reproachment with Russia. Get the gas turned back on. Get on your knees and beg for forgiveness, okay? And stay out of other people's businesses. For, tw for t 15 years, you were told the EU. And so the EU is subj subjugated to the United States, okay? And they take their cues from them. Like I said in the last video, there's a good possibility, I don't know for a fact, I can't know, that the United States, along with the UK, maybe some other actors, blew up the Germans' gas pipeline from their major gas supplier, so that would inhibit any reproachment. So what do you do? So, you know, what, what's the plan here? Okay, so you have BASF, who's been in business for 150 years, is permanently, it's in the article, you can read it, permanently um, shutting down and moving and thinking about moving to uh, other countries. Here's the last uh, portion of this. When we look at the current energy crisis in 10 years or so, we might consider this time as the starting point for an accelerated deindustrialization in Germany, said Deutsche Bank economist Stefan Schneider. Yeah. So people ask me what's, you know, you have to be able to look at these things further than just a week or two ahead, right? Um, and you see what's happening. The decisions are being made. And there's no recourse for the population. Look at the UK, for example. Uh, who are you going to vote for? You got this Rishi Sunak in there. He just came out the other day. He was he was involved in the previous governments, okay, I think as the Chancellor of Exchange, and now he all of a sudden found a $50 billion hole in the budget. He didn't know about, or 50 billion pound. Uh, you know, so what's what are these he's talking about doing? Raising taxes, cutting benefits to people. And so where do you go? Where's Keir Starmer? Where's the Labor Party? Okay, where is the new blood or the new ideas? So you don't, you can't vote your way out of this. That's what I keep telling people. You're almost going to have to have a full implosion. But even if you have a full implosion of these economies, will you still be able to recover? Will there be an ability to change the government? What I think is going to happen is these people are going to be becoming more restrictive of free speech, more restrictive of dissent, more oppressive, okay, to try to hold on to power. And uh, eventually the thing's just going to spin out of control. And uh, at some point you're going to have a catastrophe there. Uh, they cannot pay these pensions. They cannot pay these commitments. And then you're out here trying to destroy this economy and all of the ancillary uh, businesses that are in these other countries, which is the whole basis of the EU. Okay. So why, you know, why stay in the EU if it's dragging you down? You know, what you do, what, what I was taught in the Navy is when a ship goes down, once you enter the water and told to abandon ship, if you're not in a life raft, if you're swimming, get away from the ship, swim away from the ship. Why? Because when the ship sinks, it creates a vortex behind it and it pulls down everything around you. So you will be pulled down with the ship to a sufficient depth where you will drown. And that's uh, about the best analogy that I can think of. Is this actionable? I don't think that you know, places like Germany and France, unless they change their 
way of doing things. This is radical change in politics and policies in these countries, okay, which I do not see on the near-term horizon. They're not investable, in my view. Now, there are some little things here and there. I have a bank in the portfolio that's in, the, in an EU country, but it's at the periphery. It's not in the EU. And I think it has some prospects. So, you know, there may be some prospects, but to go and buy property or live in the EU, I don't think that that's a good prospect right now, unless they fundamentally change their politics and policies. So here's uh, in Sweden, uh, recent um, basically energy sources showing you uh, like this is nuclear on this side, right? This is nuclear generation. And you see how it's uh, basically pretty steady eddy. And then here on the other side is a uh, six hour over the same period of time, wind and solar. Okay. And so the intermittency, the chaos, you know, the, the, this is not how you run industrial technologically advanced societies. This is how you do it over here. I just wanted to point this out. And like I said, I'm not going to have these arguments anymore. People can believe what they want to believe. Um, this is not, <laughs> this is, this isn't how, this isn't workable long-term. This is workable. This is why I'm so bullish on nuclear power because people that are thinking people, people that are trying to put together real energy policies, this is why you see more and more uh, discussion around expanding nuclear power uh, and yet, you know, places in decline that are wedded to this belief about co2 are you gotta remember something it's not just this belief it's not just like one faction of people it's a lot of entrenched interests yes there's true believer environmentalists like these stoops that go and super glue themselves to lanes of the highway um that's one group that's not the biggest one then you have nominal environmental people that just are not educated they they don't understand Yes, they, they're for environmentalism, whatever that means, however they define it in their mind, but, you know, they're not willing to pay for it. Then you have people in the industry that's there, you know, you're not going to change someone's mind if their living depends on them not changing their mind. We've talked about this. And then there's a whole, you know, cohort of hundreds of thousands of lawyers and developers and people that are in the business uh, and then lobbyists that go along. There's so much money now in this sector that it's just not going to go away okay it's it's just another one of these sectors that exists and so you have the cumulative effect of all of this it's not like some star chamber of 12 people that have decided we're going to do this i mean it's just you know and so ask yourself in the west if this is your policy and the subsidies and in the in the in the tax breaks and the sops for less efficiency and more chaotic power in a, in a context of currencies that are in decline, like, a, okay, over indebtedness, is this going to be the priority or is the priority going to be um, once we have these currency crises? Look what's happening with the currency in Japan and in the EU relative to the dollar. And uh, remember, this is all relative. One shirt's just stinkier than the other one. Doesn't mean that the US dollar isn't stinky, but right now it's the cleanest shirt in the hamper. Suffice to say, this is the future on the left. This is, uh, I don't, you know, I don't think this this is the future in the in in the on the right. So, upon that, like Japan, for example, you know, they always try to like consider themselves part of the OECD and kind of hap sometimes go along with this stuff. But you know, they have their own problems, right? They don't 
have the ability, they have no energy sources on the home islands. And so they almost are totally re reliant on imports. And so here's what they've said, right? Because of the high prices of LNG and oil and gas and things like that. Japan will put the introduction of a carbon emission surcharge on hold, abandoning plans to include it in a physical 2023 tax reform as it seeks to avoid adding to the burden on companies and consumers already struggling with skyrocketing energy costs. Well, let me ask you the question, because what we have been told by the world, by the UN, by the, um, all of these institutions, the masters of the universe, is that we only have eight years. We're heading for disaster blah, 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 all this nonsense, these lies, or not lies, but these false predictions that never come true. And yet here we have, in the end, in the end, when it comes down to it, if you want to stay in power, you have to acknowledge reality. Again, when physics meets politics, physics wins. The government and ruling party lawmakers will look elsewhere to finance the nation's transition to net zero greenhouse, greenhouse gas emissions for the time being. They're not going to do anything. They're going to turn on their nukes, keep turning their nukes on. That's what they're going to do. Okay. And so that's what a government should be doing, right? It should be looking to avoid, like it says in the article, avoid adding to the burden on companies and consumers already struggling. That's what the purpose of the government is, okay? Not to come out with more taxes, more dumb initiatives, more burdens to companies and people, okay? Over a trace gas. I'm sorry, that's, that's a life-giving gas. I'm, I'm just not going to have this conversation. And in the end, this is what will end up happening if you want to stay in power. So I'm going to put a, I'm going to, put a link uh, to this paper uh, I put, this is the last, last, uh, slide. There's a pretty good paper. It's really complex. Uh, you have to, I had to read it a couple of times. I'm still reading it, but this is basically, you know, why recycling lithium ion batteries will not save us. You know, this idea that you have that people sometimes put out that are advocates for these things, they will tell you that it can become a circular economy. We can use the batteries for eight to 10 years and then we can take it out of the Tesla and then it can sent, be sent for recycling. All the materials can be recycled and then they can you know, be turned into a new battery. And then it's like this you know, self-licking self ice cream cone, right? It just never runs out. It's an everlasting gobstopper, okay? Well, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory was fiction. And so when you actually get down, these are the different, these are the different, um, ways that they currently recycle or thinking about recycling. when you get into like how energy intensive how physically dangerous and labor intensive this is you know you have to dismantle the battery plastics i mean fires can i mean read the paper and then you're like getting all these treatments and there's all these heatings if you want to use this one it's very energy intensive and so i got this off a of twitter feed link to the paper i don't have i'm not smart enough to go through it and i don't have the time because it's just intuitively you don't even need to like do this down to each btu but it's easier to mine the stuff even though that's energy intensive this is more energy intensive and dangerous and dirty and so this self the everlasting gobstopper is not true it's not going to happen um maybe I should say never. I want to. I want to. I want to stop saying that because you never know what will happen. Maybe new processes will come along. Let's just say currently it's not going to work. 
Okay, it's not going to be the panacea that some people are saying that we can have this everlasting gobstopper or self-licking ice cream cone that just continues to you know regenerate itself, and then we you know we can in our minds solve the problem. Where do you get the energy for all of this preheating and you know all this smelting and and all this stuff, all these processes? Um, they're energy intensive. They're late, you know, dismantling. You have to do it, you know, by hand, or I guess they have machines that do it, you know, and then some wag would say, well, they're already doing it, but are they doing it profitably? Okay. Can you extract enough material value um, and still make money doing it? Because if you can't do it, then it has to be subsidized. And how are overly indebted governments and you in the U.S. going to spend billions of dollars recycling? I mean, this is going to be a big problem five to 10 years down the road with all of this waste we're going to have from all of this solar panels and wind farms and batteries. They're not going to know what to do with them. It's going to be an, it's going to be a big nightmare. You can drive all over West Texas with right now. Okay. And find uh laydown yards where they've repowered wind turbines. I've talked about that before, how they do that. And they don't know what to do with the blades. So they just have them piled up in laydown yards. They're just sitting there. Some of the places I've been for years, I've driven by the same yard for five or six years and the blades are same blades are still there. So something to keep in mind, if you're interested and you're a chemistry person, you know, uh, like I said, I'm never going to say never, but when I started reading this, I started thinking to myself, you, you're going to like set this up where, where are they going to let you put this recycling place with all of these off gases, all these acid treatments, all this stuff going on, smelting reduction. What do you, how do you get the, uh, you know, what's going to come out of the stack on the other side of this process? Who's going to let you build that anywhere? You know, we already have the NIMBY and the banana situation. So I don't see it. I'm sorry. Uh, and then what do you think? You're just going to ship all this stuff to like India or Bangladesh and they're going to do it over there uh, like they do the ship breaking now. Uh, I'm not sure that that's going to work either. So We'll see. Uh, like I said, never say never. Technology increases, processes increase, necessity sometimes pushes this. But currently, um, this is not like, oh, well, we'll just recycle it. Not a problem, John. Don't you get it? Yeah, well, what does that really mean in real life? That's, you know, nobody contemplates. That's the same thing with the mining to get the original materials. No one contemplates the fact, you know, I, I put it, I talked about it last week. It was funny. I was on a Twitter feed where they were showing like that big mining haul truck or that front end loader and how much diesel it uses an hour. And inevitably what happened was some wag showed that, that Caterpillar had a demonstration excavator they were demonstrating in Europe that runs on, it has battery powered, but it was a demonstration. It was not in production. No one's using the darn thing. And when you're mining, uh, or copper or nickel, whatever you, this is 24, seven, 365 guys, that doesn't stop. Okay. Because you need the huge economy of scale. So how do you recharge the battery? What do you do during the downtime? Do you buy twice as many machines so you can, I mean, see, this is what you get from people that they, 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 they want it to happen so bad. It's the right thing, John, I believe. So look, look, Caterpillar made it, made, made it a battery operated excavator. Okay. It's not in production. No one's using it on a job site that I've seen. 
I'm all over the place. I've never seen this battery powered excavator or equipment on any job site because we're working dawn to dusk and we can't just, you know, shut down for six hours to recharge the battery, presumably with what, a diesel generator? Because most of the places you're working don't have electricity out there. So this is what you end up with. A bunch of people that I think in many cases have their hearts in the right place, but they just do not know what they don't know. And so they vote for policies or they support policies that are actually a net negative because in their heart, they want it to happen or they feel like it's the right thing, but they don't understand the actual mechanics of it. So that's, that's my view. But again, that's head we tails, head, heads we win, tails we win more. That's our opportunity. That's another one of our opportunities, right? Is to take advantage of that lack of knowledge and uh, cause they're gonna try to do it anyways, regardless of what I say on this YouTube channel. All right, guys, that's it for this week. Uh, hope you got something out of this. Appreciate the um, the following. Again, if you're interested in these oil field services stocks, they're starting to move. We've got a whole, probably a half dozen of them in the portfolio. Uh, most of them are doing fairly well. We've had one up over 100% already. There's more to come there. Uh, so consider a subscription to the Actionable Intelligence Alert newsletter. Uh, I think that... Uh, we're crushing the S&P, we're crushing, you know, the benchmarks. So, um, of course, future performance is not guaranteed, um, and our portfolio is volatile to the upside and the downside. So keep that in mind. All right, guys, thank you, and we'll talk to you next week.